Hello, I'm Derek Wheatley and welcome to episode 116 of the Weekly Weekly Podcast. Uh, as always, thank you very much for coming on uh, uh, YouTube or wherever you find it, Spotify, Apple, all those places. Uh, we really appreciate it and the support you give us each week for subscriptions and likes and all those kind of things and reviews. Um, thank you very much for, for listening last week, actually, because I came on, did a, did a bit of a solo run at, um, yeah, just talked a bit and was kind of semi coherent and, and uh but it was it was a fun one because I, it took a lot of uh work to do and i kind of sometimes you have to do a bit of work because i'm relying the guests far too much but uh they're more interested than i am so that's good but let's get into our uh, episode uh this week um our guest is a lecturer of neuroscience at bristol university and her name is emma cahill correct Thank i just I, I emma i nearly messed it up there and do you know it's it's the irish you're irish yes and it's that pronunciation that the English use Cahill and I think I hear that more now and it's probably through maybe footballers or you know uh, mm. I'm not too sure so I was thinking about this better ask I better ask and then I nearly messed up but I got it right you got it right but I'm, don't worry about it I I did a whole conference once as Dr. Chill because of a typo so Dr. Chill <laughs> that must now there's definitely a character called Dr. Chill somewhere so must be <laughs> but, uh, listen Emma um We'll start where we always do. Uh, could you give us a short history of your upbringing, please? Sure. So I'm from County Waterford, from a small village called Faith Leg. Again, where um, maybe the English pronunciation of an Irish place name has gone a bit wrong. <laughs> but um, It's a really small village. I mean, in my school, it was, you know, nine or ten people per class. And the wow. teacher had three classes in the one room. Um, so kind of country, um, not a lot going on, but... In a way, it's kind of good. It throws different, you know, kids together and you make your friends locally like that. And a lot of um, outdoor stuff going on. Um, I did sort of, um, funnily enough, you know, I I think it was was a pretty normal country school. My my parents were actually from Dublin. So I was kind of always up and down to see family up there. Um, And I was, you know, raised Catholic and all that and involved in the doing the mass readings and altar girl, all that sort of things, um, which I do think actually, funnily enough, helped for lecturing. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I wasn't as frightened as I might have been about public speaking by the time I was a teenager, funnily enough. But yeah, that's the that's the background country. Mm. And did you, because um, you obviously had the experience then of, of both, if you've, you, you were in uh, Waterford, but then you were traveling up and down to Dublin and uh, what would be I've I've asked a few people this actually. What what would be your preference? Waterford. Right. Do you, do you prefer <laughs> just bit, the quiet? I do. I like countryside. Um right. I mean I've lived in cities. I've I did my PhD in Paris and um I've been, you know, sort of I think the thing about small villages is you kind of have this um sense of knowing who's around, even if you even if you're not close to them, you know the families, you know the kind of history of the place you feel kind of a connection to it perhaps yeah. a bit more than somewhere which is a capital that can be a bit more transitory um yeah. so I like that aspect of it but I mean I've moved yeah I moved to Cambridge then I moved to Bristol and, and there's advantages in different places a lot more going on yeah um I think that the real bonus for me it, it takes I travel up to Dublin my mom lives up in Dublin so I travel up there a bit and there is that idea when I talk about anxiety, it's it's quite, you know, there's a lot of people around and it's moving fast and all that stuff. But on, on the flip side of it, it's also uh, the anonymity, you know, the fact that like you can go there and know that 
you know, if you're if you're not feeling like talking to someone, you you mm. go there and you know you're not going to bump into someone. And uh, I kind of like that. But I, I live in the country now, and I would definitely prefer it because of the quiet and just the you know everybody everybody waves at each other. I I don't know. Mm. I just like that kind of thing. But um, so always ask the second question is always um, Emma, when did you first become aware of mental health? Yeah, this is actually something that I was, I was thinking about because. I don't think I consciously became aware of mental health till till very late in life, because I think I would have actually come across it more as a mental illness, mm. you know, the, the extreme end of the scale. And then when I was thinking about, you know, when was I kind of exposed to this, the most acute incident, unfortunately, like many people, um, I had a friend who committed suicide as a teenager. So that's the sort of, you know, acute episode mm. where you're aware of how extreme things can go. But then I was thinking about, well, actually, in fairness, in school, even without thinking about it, a lot of the literature and the arts that we do are talking about extremes of emotions. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I know, I know it's not people's favorite thing, but even on Trial that I did in Irish, you know, it's spoiler alert, doesn't end well, <laughs> with, yeah. which is true of a lot of Irish literature, actually. Yeah. And even in English, you know, think I was thinking about like poems I remember are sort of like um I can't even remember who wrote it like the one about stop all the clocks when um oh, someone's yeah. partnered I think it might have been Wordsworth or somebody but their partner has died and so maybe you know at the time I probably would have thought oh, this is this is just grief or this is just a social situation for this woman that becomes pregnant but actually they're probably the first time people start to show you um different cases of of mental health and and different um perspectives on it it's probably it's, coming from the arts yeah it's it's you, you know you're actually the first person to kind of bring it up in that in that sense and it's it's um it's interesting when you think of um you know literature for instance and my, my favorite book through when it, was, it still is my favorite book but when we were reading it in school was to kill a mockingbird and obviously mm. boo radley's character was um you know never uh talked about mental health in the book but obviously yeah. there was something uh with boo radley with regards to mental health but he was seen as kind of the scary guy uh, you know down the, the end of the street we all had that when we were young as well I think mm-hmm. but if we lived in an estate or something or, or even out in the country there was always a house where you like didn't really want to go past and there wasn't a conversation about mental health so it was never open to to maybe your your parents saying to you well you know that's the situation there is you know mm-hmm. it was always just the scary kind of you know you know the the guy or, or the lady down the end of the street and yeah it, it it's interesting to know back especially as you mentioned with Irish literature it's pretty grim uh you know uh at the best of times but um yeah that's that's a great answer um so Emma so this is I'm allowed I think I'm allowed one really really broad question per episode I give myself that so what is neuroscience so neuroscience is the study of the brain and behavior associated with it we believe I mean neuroscience is very obviously brain focused because the the brain cells are typically called neurons or neurons, mm. depending on who you ask. But it's not just neurons. There's other cells there, of course, as well, glia, which are really overlooked. But basically, it deals more with the physiology, like how the brain works, mm. rather than um, the older science psychology, which would be more the study of behavior. Yeah. And trying to figure out what drives different behavior or different traits in different um, situations. But what I think is quite exciting is that nowadays neuroscience and psychology are very close together. 
So you'd have people that say they are cognitive neuroscientists. So they study cognition, which is our you know, ability to recognize, to think, decision make. And in fairness, they're studying the same processes that experimental psychologists have studied for years. So it's it's a good time to study it because there's this convergence of two fields, mm. which for a long time were quite separate. And if you go back even further, I mean, philosophy would have been the original people to study the mind and yeah. and that sort of angle. So it's neuroscience is probably I think it would be fair to say it's the baby of experimental psychology. <laughs> yeah, because we've we've talked about psychology on here. We've had um you know, uh, different people in the profession uh, uh, to, to speak about uh, mental health and, you know, the study of mental health and, you know, even going to a psychologist and uh, the different, there's all so many different types of therapy that um, we've, we've had on and it's interesting, but we haven't really dug deep into neuroscience. So that's what's it's, it's great about having you on. What was it actually that um, attracted you to uh, neuroscience? I think I I went into sciences. I did natural sciences where you had a choice because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Mm. So I wanted options. And then when it came second year into uni of picking what your specialism was, I kind of thought to myself, the most interesting thing to me are people. So people have brains, hence neuroscience will be interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Although animals have brains too, but I don't know. um, I mean, I like zoology, but yeah, I think that's why I, I kind of went along the line of, I think it was also quite probably marketed is the wrong word, but it was probably, you know, presented as quite a new science as well. Um, I think at the time there were kind of only two degrees in Ireland where you could do neuroscience. So that kind of made it exciting as well, that it was this new subject. And then when I got into it, um, I did again like that thing that you have the biology. You can kind of understand how do cells work? How do they make changes and adapt? And then you you ultimately, most of the time, want to read out and behavior that you can see so you can try and understand how different um, organisms act in their environment. So I found that interesting. Yeah. And what, what was the route then? Like, where was the first um, college or university you went to? Yeah, I went to Trinity. I did natural okay. sciences there. Um, yeah, I was, I was absolutely delighted to get in. I remember the day the postman arrived i still remember the court the caa cao code was tr071 <laughs> i was absolutely ecstatic when i got it and uh, i had a great experience there i mean I, I was all right i wasn't a stellar student or anything um but in my final year there was a chance to do research so you went into a lab hmm. and my supervisor was um dr anya kelly so she studies um physiology of exercise and how that affects memory so i did a research project looking at if rats were exercised, would they have better memory for objects? Okay. And I found that was so interesting because I thought, you know, oh, like, um, it's interesting to hear about things in lectures, but then you actually go and you do it and you realize the holes in our knowledge, what we don't know, mm. and that you can actually see something for the first time or figure out little bits of the, of the problem and the practical side of it as well. You kind of plan your own day, run experiments, analyze data and that sort of thing so that really got me interested in research as an actual line of of something to follow Uh, so so we're going to obviously talk uh, more about what you um you know what you research and what what you um you dig uh, down into but i just want to kind of touch on this before we go into like 
when we're talking about something like um, mental health and we can kind of stick to maybe anxiety or depression, like either, you know, and because there's so it's very broad and we, we don't need to go into everything, I suppose. But what in your kind of uh, research, like what happens to the brain in the situation when somebody is quite anxious about something? Yeah, this is really interesting because um, one of the questions that I'm really interested in is how is the anxious brain different from the fearful brain? Mm. Like, what's the difference between fear and anxiety? And I think this is where it's really interesting to speak to people, um, to humans, because <laughs> obviously I work with animals mostly. But yeah. the, the thing is that w- the way we formalize it now is we think that anxiety is the brain's response when it's not sure about where the threat is coming from. It's a response to a potential threat. So interestingly enough, there seems to be brain areas that become active, which are different from the brain areas that become active in fear. And fear is the response when you have an obvious threat, where you're kind of aware, like, I have to react now. So um, classically, everyone thinks of the amygdala as being a brain area, which is really important for emotion. And it is. And it's activated by fearful stimuli. But interestingly, there's an extended bit of the amygdala, which has a really awful name, the bed nuclei of the stria terminalis. So, yeah, we just call it the BNST for short. And the BNST, interestingly enough, becomes activated when people are shown things that are potential threats. So there's this difference. So, So it could be that there are different circuits in the brain that have evolved to deal with potential uncertain unpredictable threat versus something that's obvious and you need to respond instantly but in terms of like in terms of the cells that are activated or the neurotransmitters that are involved it's a lot less clear because you have to make a big leap between understanding um, the human experience of emotion and something that you can measure in a simpler inverted commas (laughs) organism that is like an anxiety behavior and it's it's a big jump you know um so you have to try and figure out whether you can measure something like that and then figure out at the cellular level what's happening in the brain i love the fact because you mentioned it already um uh, it's one of the newer you know sciences and it it must be for someone like, like yourself who's so enthusiastic about it it must be such an exciting thing to work in because of the newness and i guess how much we can find out about the brain It is. I think in saying that, you know, I actually find myself quite often going back to older studies that they may not have called themselves neuroscientists. They may have said they were physiologists, you know, just studying how the body works. And there's some really interesting work. And same with psychology. There's some excellent, really early experiments in the 50s and 60s in psychology, which are still massively influential. So it is it is new. But the exciting bit of the science probably comes from newer techniques we have. So we we've got much more of a mastery now about how to actually figure out what brain areas involved, not by just damaging them and then saying, oh, look, the animal can't do it anymore. So that bit's important. Now we have techniques that use viruses and these viruses encode or they make little proteins that can activate or stop cells. So you can locally control an area without permanently damaging it. So in, in real time, you can control behavior, which is cool. Well, and, and like, I guess all this, uh, I suppose this is a pretty obvious thing to say, but like um, the advance in technology as well is, is a, a the huge leap that that you're able to make now. 
Yes, exactly. It's and it's it's also influenced even the words we use. Like you heard me maybe just say encode there. Mm. And that's because, you know, the the people working in the 50s and 60s, a lot of them, they would have come right out of working post-World War II on um, signals and information processing. So you have this whole influence about technology giving the words to neuroscience. So we say encoding, we say information storage, we say processing for this something that this, you know, the brain isn't really a computer. It doesn't work yeah. digitally. It's not zeros and ones. It's an analog machine with levels of things being important. But we use the terminology from the tech. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, 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 it's cool, though. I, I like it. Mm. I don't know. But um I'm just going to read out a quick advert, Emma, if you don't mind, and we'll, we'll get back into it. Um, sometimes I explain why I put that. I put an LP behind me every episode. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I explain. And the reason yeah. I put what's going on by Marvin Gaye is because, like, literally, like, I don't know what's going on with neuroscience. You see, there's a link there sometimes, I, but there's no question mark on the end of what's going on, which has always been a, uh, I've never understood why there's not on the end of this album cover. But yeah, sometimes there's links, sometimes they're tenuous, but I think this one is, is a pretty obvious one. But um Anyway, that's not the advert, by the way. I'm not advertising Marvin Gaye's album from 1967 or whatever. Uh, so, Fusion Training Centre, Monksland, Athlone. A place to train in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, kickboxing, martial arts and CrossFit. A great atmosphere with experienced coaches and a real sense of community. If you want to join the team, find us on Facebook at Fusion Training Centre or drop in for a chat. Fusion Training Centre, train like a warrior. So that's that done. Check that off the list. Um, so... How did your, um, you know, research into memory and learning, because I know that's what your uh, your field is, uh, how did that come about? So in my, um, as I said, in my undergrad research, I was interested in um, object recognition memory and how that was influenced. So I started thinking about um, when I was studying for a PhD, what sort of types of learning or memory I could look at. And it's not maybe obvious, but then I actually um, went down a path of looking at how cocaine affects the brain. Okay. And one of the reasons for that is a major theory about addiction is that drugs of abuse actually take over the circuits of the brain that normally are used for learning and memory. Okay. So um, for that reason, I went to study um, yeah, how cocaine could actually make this really strong, lasting impact on the brain that overtakes behavior. And um, after that, then I, for my postdoctoral work, after my PhD, I flipped direction and said, well, what about stimuli which are not so rewarding, but are aversive? So I started to look at fear mm. and how fear memories become um, so strong and lasting. So it, both of these stimuli, if you want to call them that, fearful things or drugs of abuse, they're called reinforcers. So they, they reinforce a particular behavior from happening and that is really um, what we think is um, is kind of supported by the same things in learning and memory. Yeah. The, the, the thing about fear, okay, because I, I like this because when you're starting to get to know someone, not like or pretty quickly you'll you'll find out or ask them what their greatest fear is. You know, and we're all a lot of people say heights, and we, a lot of people have similar fears. And I just want to ask mm. you a little bit about that because. I've said this on this podcast before and people laugh at me, but it's, I think it's a very unfair. So my fear, I guess it's a fear. I don't really know what it is, is bananas. Hmm. And I, when I see, and I, I, I don't know this, you might be able to help me with this actually, whether it's a fear or not, because it's like when I see them, I'm, I don't know if I'm 
if it's a little bit of fear or if I'm just repulsed by them, because mm. it's one of those things where it's like, you know, everything people say, why do you not like bananas? And I say everything like, you know, the taste, the, the texture, everything to do with it, the skin, whatever. But I, I honestly think it's starting. Can you become afraid of something over time? I think you could. I mean, theoretically, there's no reason why not. Um, but what you're talking about, like being repulsed, would be typically described as disgust, which is one of the, the fundamental emotions. Fear is another one. So there are six. Um, so it's, yeah, joy, anger, fear, disgust. What's the other ones? Sadness. Um, and there's something else. Surprise was in the original ones as well, but they dropped that later. Oh. Um, yeah, weirdly enough. So I think it's possible. Um, I think people would laugh because <laughs> it's in, it's meant to be an innocuous thing. Mm. Um, in animal research, actually, one of the things people look at quite a lot is taste aversion. Conditioned taste aversion would be the technical term. And that basically means where an animal eats something and then has a bad experience and then it will avoid that food for a long time so there are models which which kind of map onto this but I think there's an interesting piece of work as well about um, what they call biological preparedness so this is an idea that it's easier to become afraid of certain things like you were saying like heights or Mm. spiders or something because we're biologically already prepared to be afraid of them like like we've inherited over generations some sort of biological memory that it makes us quicker to con- to condition or to learn to be afraid of a particular thing rather than something else like a, a banana, which yeah. would be innocuous and shouldn't cause us any problems. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so there's some really old influential work with um, monkeys, actually, looking at that, trying to, to make them afraid of stimuli. And the animals were able to learn very quickly to react to a toy snake, but not to a bunch of flowers even though the same kind of stimulus was used. So it's yeah. kind of this idea that you're you're pre-wired for certain things to be easier to learn. Maybe I'll try that with like a bunch of flowers and a, and a toy snake or something. We'll f- I'll figure it out. It could, you know, it's actually, listen, you speak about it, Emma. Maybe it is that idea of just being repulsed by it and, mm-hmm. you know, banana sandwiches when you were younger, which is, banana oh, yeah. sandwiches, yeah. madness. It's, it is absolutely, but even if you like bananas and you like bread, <laughs> putting the two together is is crazy anyway but um that was just my little thing but um so when you talk about um uh illnesses uh say memory loss and and alzheimer's and mm-hmm. and the illnesses that go along with them how far have we come in in um in studies with regards to i guess catching and catching them early mm. yeah that's a good question i think um the difficulty with trying to catch things like Alzheimer's early is that they are disorders that generally happen in older people Mm. and generally in older people there's also something called mild cognitive decline anyway that we all start to just not have as good memories as we get older so you, you need something that's sensitive enough to be able to tell apart that natural decline in memory from what's happening in Alzheimer's I haven't kept up to date really with that literature that much, but I think um, one of the interesting things is the type of memories that become um, weakened in Alzheimer's disease tend to be sort of what we call episodic. So this ability to sort of um, relive or see it from your mind's eye Mm -hmm. memory rather than facts and figures, which we call semantic memories. So be able to remember things like um, birthday or, you know, who is the 
the president or the tarnished or the prime mm. minister, whatever, things like that will remain. But I think um, it, it's tricky to pull apart uh, those two things. So I think in terms of how far we've come, um, I guess there's a, there's a good push to sort of, at least if people are talking about it, like you, you started off this conversation about how we maybe didn't speak as much about mental health before in the past. Mm. I guess the earliest people can, can diagnose, you can start to put things in place to ease you know, symptoms or to help people with their quality of life by putting things in place so that they have reminders or they, they're able to do tasks they need. So even if it's not um, at the point of a cure, at least they're having an openness and a willingness to, you know, people to say that they feel like they're getting particularly forgetful will, yeah, will allow things to, to be caught earlier. I think it's that, um, and most people will have it, had an experience within their family of dementia or Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think it's that thing of, uh, well, it's the same with, with mental health that people aren't, they feel like maybe they're going to become some sort of a burden on other people and they don't want to mention it. Mm. And then it becomes down the line where it's becomes quite noticeable. And then, you know, like you said, we, we haven't put anything in place mm-hmm. and then you're kind of trying to catch up with it a bit. Um, I wanted to ask, and I, I meant, we mentioned this before I started recording about the effect of um, anxiety on mental health. And mm-hmm. um, I spoke to my friend about this and he, he mentioned about the hyper-focus and I, I, you know, it made a lot of sense to me, but I, I probably didn't explain it to him correctly or as well as I could have. But I, I was talking about if I'm if I'm going into town, for instance, when quite anxious about it, that's all I'm focused on is, is mm-hmm. the anxiety of it. And I get into town and I leave. I won't remember most of the trip to town. It becomes just that. The, that's what he I guess he meant about hyper focus. How do you. um have you seen anything about that in regards to anxiety affecting um, uh, memory? Yeah, I think this is something that I've recently become very interested in because um, of this idea that you can have, uh, they might call it hypervigilance as a, as a symptom. So you can have this sort of um, tendency to sort of either focus on a particular thing that is you know in in theoretical terms it's a potential threat or something like that or just something that's stressful but also this ability that you might um things that are not threats people kind of interpret them as as they might be so this kind of um vigilance Mm. kind of looking looking for threat cues or you know things that predict threat when when it's a actually a safe context and it's not necessary I find this really interesting because typically in animal studies, when we're trying to figure out what might be underlying anxiety responses, a lot of the tasks we use, and for good reason, they use etiological measures, people would say, or measures that are kind of natural to the animal. Mm. So, for example, sticking them in a maze, in a, in a brightly lit maze, rodents are crepuscular, they like dawn and dusk and nighttime, so they'll stick to the dark areas, and you, you measure how much time they spend in the dark as a measure of how anxious they are. Okay. But that, that is actually, that's, an, that's a behavior which is more like avoidance. You know, they're avoiding going into the brightly lit area. And humans do show avoidance if they have anxiety. So you might not go into certain situations or you might avoid certain scenarios or things. But as you say, there's a really important symptom, which is this focus on cues, trying to find them, which is the opposite of that. Yeah. But I've been really interested now to see with um, animals, can we actually study about whether 
they become hyper aware of cues that potentially predict threat. Um, there's also the this is another thing that I just thought of. It, it's the you know it, the hyper. I, I get the vigilance and and the idea of threat because I do think about that a lot. Like and in in like you say, you go into a place where there isn't any obvious threat but everything that you see around you could possibly be a threat and you've you've mm. you know you've uh, you've led yourself down that kind of path but there's some events where I might have to do something the next day where I might be quite anxious on I'll, I'll be sitting in my room just on my, just on my own watch like tv's on watching a film or reading a book because that's that'd be normally what I'd be doing but say if I'm reading a book and I'm and I'm anxious nothing will go in like I'll get through mm. 50 pages nothing I'll if if I watch the film when I'm anxious, I might uh, you might ask about me the, about it the next day, and I will tell you I can't. I remember who was in it, and that's mm-hmm. about it. And it's it's constant. It's the constant, um, uh, I suppose, effort of mm-hmm. trying to remain in the moment, mm-hmm. but that anxiety is is like calling all the time to kind of pull you out of it. And it's um, yeah, it's look. I've talked about it with with therapists and all that, but like you know that I. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to hear what you're doing with animals. Going to find out what you know yeah. what it is with them because it's very it's a weird. Thing. It sounds. It reminds me of older ideas about stress. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe the people who were researching psychological stress back in the day, if mm-hmm. we ask them now, they might find that their research was closer to potentially anxiety yeah. because, like, even I can't remember what year, but late 1800s is this study of looking at about attention and stress so if you have too much of it like you're saying you don't encode the information Mm. it's not going in a little bit is good a little bit of stress can actually help you to remember things yeah so it's all about what they call this like um inverted n curve so it's like sorry no an n shape (laughs) inverted u so it's it's all about yeah being in the right spot of a level of of arousal or Mm. potentially anxiety and some people will just be biologically vulnerable that they've gone to the other end of the scale. Yeah. You know, or, or even on the opposite, you could have too too little arousal and then you don't pay attention to anything and you don't focus and it doesn't enter into a long-term memory. Yeah. So th- this idea is is interesting and it's similar in a way to, you know, um, what people would call a cognitive bias. So it's sort of like weighing different information um, disproportionately so th- so th- as you say you're in a safe context there is a um, something there that you could be focusing on but this other thing is is dragging all the resources to it um, uh, yeah I, I, like this is the uh, like I've obviously come on a long way since you know I, it was particularly bad a few years ago and I've come a long way since but it was always um, uh, it's always more that I think about it and the ideas of behind it of of why we um, I suppose I'm able to think about it now. Back then, I was worrying so much that I wasn't able to think about why this is happening, mm-hmm. or the, you know, the reasons for it, and be able to talk about it and stuff. But it's just, it's always been fascinating to, uh, for me when I do have that um, anxiety. I d- and we talk about fight, fight or flight thing as well, and that's mm-hmm. a huge. Um, and I think it was a lot more flight back in the day, like you know. So I think now I'm able to kind of fight through it. But yeah, mm-hmm. just the idea of being because like you say you have to have a little so you have to learn how to sit in it and be a little bit comfortable in it mm-hmm. but at the same time be able to take in what you're trying to do around you and you know uh and you know I, I think I'm getting there I'm getting there a bit but um there's there's another thing with memory and again look because it's you know primarily a mental health podcast we've talked about trauma quite a bit on it and people mm-hmm. 
you know, the the um, the things that set people off or things, you know, the, the they might um, selectively forget certain parts of it and other bits of it come back up. Is, there, is that something that you've um, have much uh, kind of background in? We've looked in the lab at how certain memories might be, temp- you know, potentially weakened. So this is interesting for trauma because not for all cases, but for some cases like in PTSD, there might have been an event which you can actually time lock and say all right well this is when things started to go wrong since that event Um, so one of the things we try and do is to figure out whether if you if you reactivate that memory so if you make the person or the animal recall that type of memory is there a way to rewrite it or sort of override the the response to it and this is not a million miles away I think from what happens in a lot of therapy it's talking therapy and you try and kind of um, rationalize or sort of change the emotional content around a situation. But what people have been trying to do from the neuroscience angle is understand what chemically happens when you recall that trauma memory. Could you mess with that chemical signals so that when the memory goes back into storage, it's stored weaker? Mm. So this is a really exciting area which um, is called reconsolidation because originally memories were thought to go through a kind of a linear path of being encoded, consolidated, and then lasting for, for, you know, was potentially your lifetime. But then it was actually discovered in the 60s, but it was kind of rediscovered in 2000, that if you recalled a memory, and then you gave certain drugs, which disrupt these chemical processes that let the memory become stored again, the animals didn't show the behavior anymore. So it was like there was an amnesia. And we don't think Now, I think it's fair to say we don't think it's completely erasing the memory, but there's a lot of active research in trying to understand this, because, as I said, it was sort of um, originally discovered bit by accident. So we're not 100 percent clear about all the mechanisms that are involved, but that's an interesting therapeutic avenue. If you could couple therapy with some drugs that would be able to weaken the processes by which these memories are stored away again you could have a better um, long lasting effect for, for patients. Wow. Um, we had a, we had a film reviewer on recently, uh, Lillian Crawford, and she, she was great, but she talked about trigger warnings and stuff. And that was, mm. that was, that was kind of got me thinking about it again, because we've spoken to people who've had some horrible traumas in the past, but, um, and what, you know, when you, when you're not thinking of something, you don't pick up on things, but when someone mentions about trigger warnings, then you hear them everywhere and you, yeah. you hear them yeah. on podcasts and, uh, Lillian made some great points about films, you know, especially to do with streaming services and stuff where they should be um, highlighted because, you know, if you're going into a film and all of a sudden there's a there's a horrible scene that reminds you of something that happened to you in the past, it mm-hmm. can it can set you off. So it's it's um, it got me thinking about the trauma and stuff and and how, you know, it, it, it is being worked on and people are looking into it. And it's great that like the idea that it can be lessened lessened is is i guess it's kind of a very exciting thing for you and for people who are who are studying these things but um so what like in in where you are in bristol university is there uh like what size is the is is very exciting kind of time for the can neuroscience um uh because obviously that's a main part and i know it's connected to cambridge in some way as well yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a weird one because I still have an affiliation to Cambridge because I've just okay. I've just come to Bristol and I'm still giving some lectures in Cambridge because I have a PhD student there. Okay. So she's studying how animals learn about threats from each other. 
So she's so sometimes that's true as well. You don't actually experience the trauma yourself. You witness it. But we know as humans, you can witness something bad and then you learn about it. Mm. And it's very different from the individual experiencing it. So that's what her work is on. And for that reason, I'm still um, going a little bit back and forth between the two. And in Bristol, it's been great so far. They, they've had a serious um, sort of drive to recruit more neuroscientists. Right. So there's a few of us that are, are new and that, that's always nice as well because it, it makes a bit of a dynamic sort of group all learning about each other's research. Um, I share an office with someone who's working on um, the other type of brain cell. As I mentioned, no one focuses yeah. on glia. So she's studying that with um, depression and actually mechanisms really? of drugs. Yeah, so serotonin and stuff like that. And then the other person in the office is looking at um, diseases like schizophrenia and the genetic component and trying to study that with mice to see what genetically has happened that's wow. different in the brain. So it's great when you have this mix of different people because similar as what I said to you about speaking with people with lived experience, it just gives you new ideas and takes you out of your comfort zone about the way you think about your questions, which can become quite rigid if you're always looking for the, looking for the data or the literature on the specific thing you're thinking of. I think it's really important for something like mental health that we do have this sort of broader scope and even interdisciplinary, you know, there's a great network in the, in the southwest of England called GW4. So it's Cardiff, Exeter, Bath and Bristol. And we all kind of have potential then to collaborate by having PhD students or learning about each other's work. And they currently have a workshop on building back better for mental health. So we've had big discussions about, you know, what, where is the intersection of well-being, mental health, mental illness, and people coming from different specters, you know, historians, philosophers, people who study education, so it's it's really, um, I think, you know, there's a lot of things that were difficult with the pandemic, but at least post-pandemic, pe- there seems to be a new drive for people for collaboration and face-to-face interaction yeah. and a bit more, you know, social um, aspect of the science as well. It's brilliant that, the, you know, because we, um, I say we, but like people who maybe have been affected by mental health and they, a lot of the times when you're, when you're really down and you, you start to believe that like you're the you're the only one and there's no one out to to help you and stuff but then you realize that there's people um outside of your sphere like studying this and trying to find ways to because serotonin is another interesting thing because people um will talk about it people i've heard people dismiss it stuff as it's not something Mm -hmm. that's been affected by by um you know uh, by depression and stuff like that and uh we've obviously talked about medication and stuff like that and i'll always stand for what has helped me and i can't say what would help someone else but to have to have people like yourself uh, and uh, the people we work with looking after that kind of that side of things is very important and it gives us a bit of hope as well I think that's another thing you know because it's it's one thing like we say going to therapists but there has to be you know people digging deeper as well to find out the reasons and how we can how we can help it but I wanted to actually ask you about that with of the last two years because uh the, how, how did the last two years just on, on a personal level affect your memory and your and your learning yeah, I think I I was one of the lucky ones that had a garden. <laughs> so okay, good. I, I loved going just sitting outside. I was able to work in fairness because I can I can do a lot of um my teaching and, and analysis and stuff on a laptop, but in terms of animal experiments, we were we're still classified as medical preclinical research, they call it, so we were allowed to go in and work. But I think I spent, I learned a new word from all the, you know, everyone was doing these online quizzes. Mm. So I think in terms of memory, I learned some useless information, okay. such as 
uh, a taphophile is someone who loves graveyards. And I think I became a taphophile. Taphophile. What a great, what a great word that is. Because I, I spent, I kind of walked, I did a lot of walking. Um, you know, we were allowed our once a day exercise. Mm-hmm. And nearby me, there were some interesting graveyards where I was living in Cambridge. So I was walking around those, which sounds really morbid, but actually it was nice to get out, walk around. And you kind of realize, well, we all end up in the same place yeah. <laughs> at some point <laughs> or another. So um, I think I, I mean, as as a lot of people, I probably found that um, it it made it was interesting because I was lucky. I was living with two women that I got on really well with in a house chair, so I still had the social kind of aspect. I wasn't completely alone, but I noticed that like a lot of people that I might have only spoken to at Christmas and stuff, like friends from Waterford and stuff, because we were all getting used to Zoom and everything. Yeah, we we're having these quizzes online or talking to each other online. So in a way it did actually create a bit of an opportunity for people to get back in touch with Mm. people they hadn't spoken to in a while or something, because globally everyone was to different extents, but experiencing a similar situation, you know? I I found it less stressful and less anxious, or Mm. sorry, less anxiety because because there was no pressure on you to kind of go somewhere and you didn't, you, you know, there was always... Uh, the, when I'm really bad, like I'll try and I'll hope for an excuse will come up that I can get out of something. But the, ex, the excuse was ready made. So it was for, I was very much, m- much more relaxed and stuff like that. But I, I, I guess I didn't kind of notice what Adam, the reason I said about memory. And it was, I, I think my memory suffered a little bit with it, like just with regards to, um, I guess, like social, mm-hmm. you know, what I mean, you, you, the, um just being able to interact like I'd normally interact. I was a little bit, uh, I was a little bit off. And every time I went into, then when the, the anxiety had to increase, when I did have to go into like a place, like to get some, buy something that uh, the whole idea of having to meet someone was just, Oh God, I hope I don't because I've forgotten all my social norms and graces and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can, I can imagine as well with the masks and everything. Like we had so many, yeah. So many, like you say, different a shift in people's expectations because some people were very risk averse, you know, and then yeah. didn't, you know, didn't want to touch anything that anyone had touched. Whereas other people would have been very relaxed and like, oh, mm. you know, we're outside, it's fine. So it let it added this whole level yeah, <laughs> of, social, of social boundaries that were that were different. Um, I I felt one benefit as well from my work was I as much as it was awful in the beginning I mean you're you're a pro with you know your your setup we had to move from teaching and lecturing in person to recording things online and then watching myself back and my hands how much they move yeah things like this so that was that was quite a dramatic change but I actually think that was really great I think going forward just the opportunity for students to have recordings of lectures Mm. to watch back and you know I think that's actually been a dramatic change in how we teach that was probably long overdue for sure I think like self-analysis has definitely gone up since we all went on zoom I think we're just so conscious of like why do I and that's why I'm so focused when I'm on the podcast I never look at my side of the screen ever because I don't because if you do you go why is that gray hair and it's actually sticking out there I just that's what <laughs> happens when you do when you look you know <laughs> but anyway that's not the point but I would just somewhat regards to memory as well like wait, so I'm 39 now and I have noticed that uh, when I'm speaking to someone I used to be so great at um 
like films and uh, mm. music and names of people and stuff like that. That's it's just starting to. I'm not worried, by the way. This is just a question I'm putting out yeah. there. I'm st- like it's a weird thing, but I guess it's a normal thing. I wonder if it's something. I'm not sure we know exactly why this happens, but I think one of the ideas might be that it's something called proactive interference. That okay. you have a, you have accumulated so much knowledge and information that when you try and actually learn something new it kind of is competing with the yeah. old stuff so as homer simpson put it you know basically when you learn something new it pushes out the old yeah, things much. in a very simplistic way that is one of the ideas um and you it works the other way as well you can have like a, a retroactive one where you're trying to learn like a for example a language and, and another language just keeps coming to mm. mind when you're trying to capture the word so it could it could be that that we just get too much interference um, but yeah, I guess. And it's funny, Carl Pilkington, another, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, what would you call him? A great mind of his time mentioned that about when something comes in, something goes out and people kind of laughed at him. But, you know, maybe it's not so, you know, it's not so out there. So what what do you like to do in your spare time, Emma? Um, I'm big into music. Okay. So I'm, yeah, I have that. I don't have it as a record. I'm I'm actually still. I have CDs, which I think. So is do I. Don't worry about mad. that. Yeah, yeah, I like music. Going to gigs. Not a particularly good guitarist, but I do play for fun. Oh, good, good. Um, yeah, and I kind of I try anything once. Um, I sort of I like drawing too. I've always been like, you know, painting, drawing things. What, what kind is that? Like, is it you know a bowl of fruit or is it more landscape? <laughs> anything. anything. Okay. Anything. I kind of. I kind of try and do something different. Hmm. Um, so with a friend, actually, this grew out, I think, after, during lockdown, because I had a friend who also, she said, oh, I, I wish, you know, I was good at drawing when I was younger. I'd like to take it up again. And I said, well, why don't we just set each other a prompt? We just Google, yeah. you know, just some random words and then give ourselves two weeks. And then we send a picture on WhatsApp, say, what have you drawn? And just kind of motivate each other to, yeah. to do it regularly. And I think I've definitely got better from doing it regularly. But I think, yeah, yeah, just stuff like that. Um, Same with in Bristol. I'm I'm in like an album club where you meet and talk about albums. Okay, so now that's that's a great idea. But now that you've mentioned it, because this is this is a thing that I've kind of started bringing in. So people mention films or music. Mm. I have to ask them if they had one album to listen to, only one album for the rest of their lives, what would it be? Oh, like Desert Island Discs. Yeah, kind of like Desert Island Discs, but just you're just allowed the one album. Yeah, I don't. I, oh, I I've tried to think about this before, and I think one of my favorites. I love um, John Martin's album Solid Air. I really love it. It's a just brilliant guitarist. Yeah, yeah, brilliant guitarist, and just there's a lot of variety in it as well. And sort of, yeah, the lyrics are kind of cool. Um, in terms of like music related to neuroscience there is a song that i really love by a kind of a jazz singer called kurt elling called samurai cowboy so you wouldn't you wouldn't get an idea from the title you won't forget that name though yeah but that's that song he's kind of talking about um running and kind of something changing in your brain and it just it i don't don't even know if he says brain i think he says scully hutch or something but like that song really for me, I was like, "This sounds like he's talking about neuroscience <laughs> in yeah. a weird way." Yeah. So I love that tune. Yeah, I, I, um, I, uh, what, do you know when you talk about music and music is a, is a, is a, such a huge thing for people? And we've t- we've discussed a bit about Alzheimer's and dementia, and how people seem to f- remember 
connections to music and things like that. I think that's such a, it's such a powerful thing. Um, was Oliver Sacks a neuroscientist? Yeah, he was um, a clinical doctor. So I think he, right. he may have been a neurologist, like he, um, meaning he could actually know more about fixing the brain <laughs> than, <laughs> than just than just sort of understanding how it works. But um, yeah, he has a great book, Musicophilia, mm. which uh, why humans are wired. I have read it and I really enjoyed it. But I think what you're talking about there about um, memory for music and memory for lyrics is something I find really interesting like yeah. why can we remember lyrics so well and I, I wonder sometimes if if it's linked to language if maybe the evolution of language you know did we start mm. with with sounds and music and and that's why it just it goes in better or is it the the rhythm and the patterns or something that helps it and maybe someone who's a, an expert in language would probably know this really quickly but I think um it is fascinating, isn't it? How how strong it can be. And like you say, yeah. you've got the example of awakenings with the, the patients being mm. able to dance when they hear familiar music. Yeah. Well, it's even what you said about uh, Samurai Cowboy, like mm. your um, how you interpret the song mm-hmm. and you can see it as um, uh, in relation to you. And I think that's that's like I, I understand like you've described very well what the music part of it is, but the lyrics is, is, is great as well because the songs that, you know, I grew up with, it seems, I shouldn't say I will, but it seems like I'll never forget the lyrics as soon as I come on the lyrics, but I've, I've already drawn parallels between the lyrics and my life or something that's related to my life or, you know, like, Oh God, that was, that was my first girlfriend and mine yeah. song, you know what I mean? And and the, you'll never break away from that. And I, I wonder, is that, you know, part of it, I'm sure it is part of the reason why people who have, unfortunately, you know, who have Alzheimer's dementia are still able to cling on to music and, you know, hear the same stuff as they did when they were young. But it's a beautiful thing that it can because of the power of that art form. Yeah, yeah. And it's so, yeah, as you say, exactly the kind of the the ability of it to also be subjective Mm. is, is really cool. Yeah, I guess maybe people would say the same thing for images and painting and stuff, but I, I don't know, but I, yeah, same thing. And and I find it funny that sometimes you can associate a certain band or, or something mm. with a person, they become tied to that individual yeah. and then you hear that, you hear that music and it reminds you of them. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's intertwined really strongly. It is. Yeah. It's amazing. And but so would you have, I obviously mentioned Oliver Saxon, would you have a favorite book, uh, you know, about neuroscience? yeah to to be honest I don't I have a few and I don't tend to read them because it's a bit if I'm reading Mm. something outside of work I tend to read something non-neurosciencey but there's one my dad actually recommended one to me called Flowers for Algernon okay what was the name of the author I can't remember the name of the author but I really loved it it's a really good story about a guy it's written like a diary right and he he writes in really bad grammar and poor English and it's a person that has you know a low IQ and the story of the book is that he undergoes an experiment to increase his intelligence. And Algernon is this oh. mouse that goes through the same experiment. I think it's from like the 60s, this book. And it follows how he sort of becomes super intelligent. And, and it's talking about loneliness and fitting in and so that. It's a really good story. Yeah. Do you know what? That, that reminds me of the plot for um, the film from the late 60s, early 70s called Charlie. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's maybe they that. made a film about it. Yeah. If if I'll actually I'll go after this I'll go and have a look. But like Charlie yeah. was I can't remember the guy who played the lead role, but he won an Oscar for it. Um, huh. but 
he it's that idea that he had a um a, a lower IQ and they he became a kind of an experiment and they went through it and oh, I think it's Cliff Cliff Robertson anyway but it go, they go through the experiment and it becomes very very intelligent and it seems like it would be it must yeah. be it must thing. be they must have made the movie oh it's cool I haven't seen that I'll check that out do yeah I, I actually yeah. have well I'm, unfortunately you're in Bristol but I have it on I actually <laughs> got it on DVD I went through this thing where I was buying all the Oscar win, winning films and right. that was one it's an actually pretty decent film but um Maybe it's maybe it's dated a bit, but I'd be interested, definitely interested in reading the book. I'll have a look. Um, mm. Listen, Emma, if if someone wants to follow your uh, work, is there any way they can do that? Yeah, I have um, I have a web page at Bristol Uni. So if you Google me, Emma Cahill, I use my middle name Nula as well because there's quite a few Emma Cahills on the internet. Oh, as... tell, tell me now. Tell tell us about yeah. uh, now. You got to mention this now because we we talked about it before. Who's the most famous? Emma Cahill on the, well, on the internet. The Google hit at the moment is the lady that has the biggest feet in Europe. <laughs> but I didn't also tell you that there's also a country singer from Ireland called Emma Cahill who has an, a never ending love for you is her country song, which is, you know. No, not as interesting as the feet, though. It's the feet. <laughs> so I'm competing with quite a few. So I, I never thought I'd use my middle name. No. But, um, yeah, so one good thing about, uh, yeah, having one. So it's it's used there. And yeah, I put... um. My uh, access to, I mean, my papers and stuff are very scientific, but I often share um, stuff on Twitter too. So I'm Dr. Emma Cahill on Twitter. Dr. Oh, Emma Cahill on Twitter. Um, I forgot actually to mention the 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 reason I brought up Oliver Sacks was there's a, there's my favorite book of his is the man who mistook his wife yeah. for a hat and and the, the the stories that go with the different patients uh, he he speaks to. It's a it's a fascinating book. Um, Emma, it's been a, a pleasure and very informative uh, chatting to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Listen, if you wouldn't mind sticking with me for a minute, I'll close this out and I'll get a quick photograph for, the, you know, for the Instagram and all that. Like, oh, okay. Keep up with that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Eva. I also want to thank um, uh, John for the tech side of stuff and Nathan for promotion. And the usual people, I always take the same people, my mom, my dad, my granddad, Jaron Calvin, my granddad, actually, I didn't mention this in the last episode, or maybe it was, I know it was, he was 95 a couple of weeks ago. Um, and he's still going and he's an absolute legend. Uh, yeah, subscribe to our YouTube if you would. Um, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, Apple Anchor, Google Podcasts, etc. Thanks everyone for, for tuning in um, to today's episode. And Emma, once again, thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, everyone, we will see you next week. Bye.